Thank you, Tim. Thank you, praise team. Let me invite you, if you would, uh, open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, and if you would, uh, go ahead and turn there. And if you did not bring a Bible with you, you're welcome to grab one out of the <clears throat> excuse me, pew rack in front of you. You can uh, write your name in that. That's our gift to you here this morning. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, we're going to pick right up where we left off. But in thinking about that, and really as you're turning in your Bibles there, uh, there's a lot of talk about culture right? Culture this and culture that. We talk about cultures for all manner of different things, and you know, and it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of interesting things to unpack, but really as we think about who we are as a church, this is a helpful thing to understand. And thinking of church culture and really defining culture in the, in the sense of what are our norms or what are our traits or our beliefs, and really we could say it another way, what is it that we are known for? And that as a church, as a believing community, as those who are committed to trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that He died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead, that all of our hope and all of our community is built around trusting in Jesus, crucified and resurrected for the forgiveness of our sin. What a joy it is to know Him, but what does this look like in practice? And really, what does this look like, not only in practice, but in practice when things don't always go the way we like them to go? So grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and read with me, if you will, from verse 5 down through verse 11. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, says this. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forg- if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit and for your glory, teach us. Soften our hearts in this moment right now and teach us. Teach us what it means to live lives individually that are committed to repentance and forgiveness. To live lives that are committed to loving and encouraging one another in the truth. And Father, that you would foster that in our own lives individually and in so doing, Father, that our entire church culture would be shaped by and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, help us as we fix our eyes upon you here today. In Jesus' mighty name we pray together. Amen. So as we come back into where we are in 2 Corinthians, and even thinking about the broader context, right? Not only talking about the God of all comfort and the God who raises the dead and trusting in Him and thinking about, you know, the one who we are to boast in His grace, and all of the promises are there, find their yes and amen in Christ, or even thinking about, you know, laboring for joy in the lives of one another. And that in, our, in all of this, even by the time we get out of chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, we have this understanding of who God is and how God is, and that it's in this understanding that we are then to go and operate. And admittedly, in the reality of the fact that things sometimes go wrong. That sometimes there are sin issues that need to be addressed. 
that there is clarity with which to operate and live and really watch the gospel do more than we can even think is possible. And that's what we see on display here. Because when we read in verse 5, he says, Now if anyone has caused pain or caused grief, he has not caused it to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. Now it's interesting, even as he describes this, he says, If anyone has caused you pain, he's caused it not to me, but ultimately to you. He's talking about the church, and he's actually talking about the church in the way in which it is actually a body. That this metaphor is actually visibly applied in the regular function of the church itself. And this is not something that would be foreign to the Corinthians. This was actually unpacked to a great degree in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so he's pointing out the fact that as the church functions, and as the church functions like a body, whenever something goes wrong or when sin takes root in the heart of somebody who is a part of the church, it's not ultimately the Apostle Paul, even though he's the founding apostle, even though he has authority under the resurrection of Christ, commissioned by God to speak on behalf of him, even still, in an ultimate sense, it's the body of Christ there in Corinth that is ultimately feeling the weight of this pain. That is feeling the day-to-day reality of the sin issue that has taken root in the life of the church. Paul is writing to them from a distance, knowing good and well that the people are living this out on a regular basis. So sin has to be addressed. And yet at the same time, there's also this danger that we need not overcorrect. That we never ought to get to the point where the church starts to function like an autoimmune disease, where the healthy cell, where the immune system actually starts to attack healthy cells. We have to navigate this with clarity and with truth. And he's helping them and he's helping us by the inspiration of the Spirit at work through the Word of God for us to see that. That the pain he has caused not ultimately to to Paul, not to put it too severely, but to all of you. Sin is not in a silo. There are real consequences to real people. Your sin is not just simply, you know, your own and it's my own little sin and it's not going to hurt anybody else but me. It's not true. You think of any exercise of pride or any exercise of anger or any exercise of lust or any, any way in which we may be unloving or even prayerless. You see all the ways, I mean we could unpack this out to infinity really in thinking about the ways in which our individual sin actually has direct consequences to those to whom we are committed to within the body of Christ. Sin does not take place in a silo. He says, I understand. This has caused you a great deal of grief. It's a hard reality. And the fact of the matter is, the hard reality actually creates a memory. Which then we have to immediately address the old Christian cliche, forgive and forget. We are called by God to forgive. But the fact of the matter is, we don't forget, do we? It creates a memory in our mind. The hurt is there. We remember the hurt and we remember the anguish and we remember the direct consequences. We remember the ways in which it affected and reverberated in real life. That is why we are told to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. 
That every time we are reminded of the hurt and the pain and the anguish that's associated in that, when someone is genuinely repentant, forgive them as God in Christ has forgiven you. When the painful reminders come of the sin in the past, go to the gospel. That the gospel would shape everything about our community and our church, our church community and our church culture. But be also aware of the fact sin must be addressed. Within the life of the Corinthian church, it looks like it had been. Because look at verse 6. It says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. We have every reason to believe that this person that he is referring to is the person that's referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. A man who is in an incestuous sexual relationship. Who was directly told by the Apostle Paul that the church needed to excommunicate him. Not simply to excommunicate him and say he's no longer a part of us, but ultimately for his restoration, that he would be rescued from his sin, that God would use that to bring about repentance in his life. Because this man was a professing member of the church of Corinth. This sin was known. His actions were affecting the unity of the body of Christ and the focus on the glory of the gospel. And so in going through the process of church discipline, in outlined in uh, Matthew chapter 18, they would have walked through every step there and ultimately followed the uh, declaration of the, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. He needs to be removed. And we read that and we think that's a hard reality. This punishment by the majority. But see, this removal, this punishment was meant to lead him to repentance, which ultimately leads to restoration. Repentance is a turning away from your sin and a turning to Christ. Turning away from what you're entrenched in, what you may love more than Christ himself, and turning to Christ. And that in so doing, your life is displaying that you genuinely know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He's saying, look, this punishment by the majority, and you can see how the church functioned here, even in the early church, right? Even congregational action, you can see it here. This punishment by the majority is enough. Enough in what sense? Enough in the sense that God used it to bring, it about, bring about the intended result. It's the same thing that parents do, isn't it? In terms of punishing their children, not simply to punish their children, not simply to be like, hey, I'm a parent and I punish my children. Why are we doing that? Ultimately for discipline, to lead them to repentance, that they would no longer walk in the same pattern anymore. There's a corrective, restorative element to this that we need not overlook. He says, and this punishment by the majority is enough. You don't want to go beyond what is enough. When you get the intended result, be satisfied with that. It's interesting as you think about, you know, you grow a little older and you get to go through all these interesting, you know, medical tests and everything else. And they find out you have high cholesterol and then all of a sudden it's like, hey, we got to go have a stress test. And for anybody who's had one of those, right, they put you on the treadmill and they start to let you run for a little while. You're like, I can do this, right? I was an athlete 50 years ago, right? 
And then all of a sudden they crank that thing up and it feels like you're running up a mountain and you're running like at a full sprint and you're like, when is, the, they're trying to kill me here. And finally, with joy in your heart, you hear the nurse or somebody in there say, we got all the information we need, that's enough. They got the intended result. They found out what they needed to know and what relief there is to know. That's enough. We can see how we're threading the needle here, how we're walking this narrow road. Because on the one hand, this is very different from the perspective of just sort of live and let live. This is biblical accountability. But this is not just about biblical accountability in the sense that somebody who decides it's wrong, says it's wrong, and then forces people out. This is ultimately restoring people to a genuine walk with Christ. What a picture, what a glorious picture we have here in the gospel that we should work with the end in mind. Not delight in looking at people and saying, oh, well, they got what they deserved. Because that's not the gospel. Because if all of us got what we really deserved, we would all go to hell. But by grace, through faith in Christ, we have Forgiveness and life in him. See, we have to be careful here the way in which we talk about this in any way, shape, or form. Because the forgiveness that's being offered here is forgiveness toward the one who is repentant. If somebody is maintaining their steadfast unrepentance, that is actually a genuine display of unbelief. If someone is entirely unwilling to repent of clear sin, lack of repentance is an indicator of lack of faith. But as we read this, we should start asking ourselves the question before we say, what about them? We should ask ourselves in our own heart, what about me? What about us? And when you follow the pattern and you see God bear forth repentance and you see that the punishment by the majority is enough, what do you do now? He says, so verse 7, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He says, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. It's interesting language. Because it's really an indicator of the fact that there were some in the Corinthian church who were like, this is not enough. He's like, no, it's enough. You got the result. But the memory still keeps coming up, Paul. The, the reminders of the awfulness of the sin still keeps coming up. But if somebody is genuinely repentant, turning away from their sin and looking to Christ, there is restoration. We need to see that. So turn to forgive. That we should forgive and comfort the repentant among us. And even the word that he uses here for forgive, you could just as easily translate it, be gracious toward them. You can't help but think about Jesus with his disciples and talking in Luke chapter 17, where he's talking about this very thing. If somebody repents, forgive them. And the question is, well, how many times, right? How many times should I do this? Should I do it seven times? How about 70 times seven? A day. You're like, what? 
And it's interesting even reading that passage and, and reading the response of the disciples to that very declaration because the very next thing out of their mouths is, Lord, increase my faith. How can I do that? I need your help to teach me to do that. And that in so doing and fixing our eyes on Christ and in walking in the gospel and in treasuring him and being reminded of his forgiveness of us when we were repenting of our sin, look at that and build a culture of forgiveness. And this is one of the ways that we will see God take what is evil and use it for good. As relationships are restored and there's memories not simply of failing, but there are memories of grace restoration of marriages and restoration of friendships and restoration of of the church family itself this gospel driven forgiveness and would we dare withhold forgiveness from somebody who is genuinely repentant knowing good and well that our God in Christ would not do the same thing but see it's not just Forgiveness that he says here. Not only does he say you should rather turn to forgive, he also says comfort him. Actively close that relational gap. Because it would be very easy to be like, oh yeah, I forgive you, just stay over there. And we're talking about restoration here, aren't we? Forgive and comfort. Bring that assurance of hope. And even the Greek text, as you read the the word here, this idea of comforting in the sense of stirring hesitant soldiers to engage in the battle. And you think, okay, well, well, we've got somebody here who's repentant. What is it that we could possibly say to them? Do we know anything that we could possibly say to them? What about some of our favorite passages of Scripture? What about Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That comfort? What about if, if we confess our sins? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What about thinking of the glory of God's grace in Micah chapter 7 and casting our sins into the depths of the sea? And see, what we see here in this restoring power of the gospel at work in the church culture, teaching us to forgive and comfort the repentant among us, is that we see that we avoid the danger of stalling out in discouragement. Because there's a real danger where it can be like it's just never enough. You can never get over the hurdle. It just feels like one more thing, and it just feels like there's no grace. So while we will never tolerate sin, we must not ever tolerate the sin of unforgiveness either. Go to the God of all comfort, who corrects us, who convicts us, who forgives us, who comforts us, and find the strength in him to do what you may not even want to do, to forgive and encourage the one who is reacclimating to the body. It takes some nurturing care, doesn't it? If you've ever had surgery before, it takes some nurture and care to reacclimate Maybe you've had a knee replacement. You don't just get up and start playing basketball the day after. At least I hope not. It takes time. You've had a problem that was fixed and restored, but now there's the hard work of encouraging and growing and acclimating to the healing that has been provided. What a, what a picture we have here. 
How about God uses accountability to lead to repentance, to lead to reconciliation, and that we get to live the display of the gospel, not only in our own individual lives, but in the church itself as a body. Because you should rather turn and forgive him, that man who is repentant, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, just heaped up burdens, just swamped and overwhelmed by this list of demands where he feels like it's just never done and it's never enough, and there's sorrow in that. Because there are some genuinely repentant people who are afflicted by the idea and constantly haunted by, could God ever forgive me? Maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, could God ever forgive me? Could God ever forgive me? And maybe you're thinking of something very specific in your own mind whenever you ask that question. Could God ever forgive me? Yes. The eternal Son of God took on flesh, lived in perfect righteousness, died our death, on the cross, endured the full outpouring of the wrath of God against the sin of all who would repent and believe, that all who come to Jesus in repentance and faith have forgiveness and everlasting life. Look to Him. Trust in Him. And forgive the repentant and comfort the repentant among us. And foster a church culture of love and forgiveness. Notice how he says this even. In verse 8 he says, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. I'm urging you, here's what to do. And it's like you can almost hear the tone of his voice that makes us perk up a little bit. But we, we do this with other things. You can hear the tone of the, I mean, we like to watch the halftime speeches of all of our favorite coaches. And you can hear their, their fervency, urging, listen, here's what you need to do. Reaffirm your love for him. And the context is so especially helpful here, especially for our own cultural context. Because as he's saying, reaffirm your love for him. We have already seen that we are not allowed to redefine what love looks like. He's talking about love within the context of biblical accountability. He's talking about clear standards of right and wrong, what is true and what is false, and living committed to those standards, knowing that God will hold us accountable for those things, not tolerating or affirming all manner of ungodly and unbiblical behavior, loving one another with the truth to lead to repentance and restoration and reconciliation. He says, reaffirm your love for him. How can we do this? Walk in the truth. Speak the truth in love. I mean, are reaffirmations of love a good thing? Hopefully, once a year, if you're married, you remember your anniversary And maybe if you've forgotten, it's in a couple of days. There you go. You're welcome. We delight in those things. But it shouldn't be that, you know, whenever you celebrate your anniversary, you come around to that one time of the year where you tell your spouse that you love them. We need these reaffirmations of love when? Well, how often should you say that? Every day, all the time. We like these things. We like to be reminded. We need these things. We need that kind of assurance. 
life makes us forget how much more so within the context of the body of Christ. To love one another with the truth. Not weaponized reminders of the past, but focus deeply on the word of God, the clarity of the word of God, calling sin, sin, calling evil, evil, but calling grace, grace, too. Simmering in the gospel constantly, that we would fix our eyes on Christ, that we would look to him, that we would remember the love of God made manifest for us, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that we would constantly point one another back to him, ever eager and ever ready to love one another. He says in verse 9, this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. It's good to know what he's after here. He said, this is my intention here, and that it's about more than just information transfer. I want to test you to know whether or not you're obedient in everything. Testing provides proof of genuineness, doesn't it? It's one thing to walk up to somebody and be like, I'm, I'm big and bad on the basketball court. It's another thing to get out there on the court and prove it, isn't it? We like the fact that there's product testing. We read all the reviews about it, right? You go to buy a car or something, and you read all the stuff about it, and you're like, oh, there's no way I'd get that one. We want to know the product testing for all the different things that we want to spend money on. We go through all the product testing, thinking about food and everything else. And honestly, somebody needs to go, I love Chick-fil-A, but somebody needs to go tell them to product test their coffee. Because I'm pretty sure it's not coffee. It's terrible. We need that kind of product testing, don't we? Because it proves genuineness. We want to know that things are real. This is a good thing, isn't it? This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether or not you are obedient in everything. And so in in declaring and even acknowledging his own apostolic authority, and really as we think of the apostles' authority now, we understand it's rooted and founded in God's word given to us in the Bible. I want you to know whether or not you're obedient. Because if you genuinely believe, you will obey. If you genuinely read the exit sign and believe that that's the exit, what will you do? You'll leave through it. If you genuinely read the instructions and believe that that's what you're going to obey. It's the same thing with children and parents. But as we think of these declarations and these calls to obedience, to repent and believe the gospel, to love one another, to hold one another accountable, and that these are not simply things that are done out of just the weight of obedience, but just as Jesus taught us, if you love me, you'll do what I say. You will keep my commandments. This is an expression of our love for him. But how helpful it is the way in which Paul says this. Because without that objective standard, we would have no idea what requires repentance and forgiveness, would we? Without the objective standard of the revealed Word of God and the Ten Commandments, we would have no idea. Without the revealed objective standard... And we can talk about, you know, Colossians 3, or you can talk about the the works of the flesh that are described in Galatians 5. These reminders of the distortions of God's good design with such clarity, calling things out as they need to be called out, but at the same time pointing everyone to look to Christ and to trust in Him. 
fostering this church culture of love and forgiveness requires having lives saturated in the Word of God. But even as we read this, we should be asking ourselves, are we obedient in everything? It's so easy to read this and be like, I know who needs to hear this. Instead of asking, Lord, show me where I fail. Teach me where I need to forgive. Show me where I need to love and comfort. Show me where I need to be corrected. And that these tests are opportunities to see the genuine work of, of God in our midst. He says, Any, verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. He's saying, look, I'm not hindering your process in any way, shape, or form. I trust what you're doing there. Acknowledging forgiveness. Because in a lot of ways, whenever somebody asks for forgiveness, it just feels unfinished until it's acknowledged, doesn't it? Do you forgive me? Waiting for the answer. And it's the Apostle Paul's, yes. Forgiven. He says, but if anything, and even acknowledging the local church authority here, he says, I've done this for your sake in the presence of Christ. For the sake of the church, every believer who trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, committed to walking together in the truth of Christ and walking in it together, he says, I do this for your sake in the presence of Christ. And not simply in the fact that one day we'll all stand before him, but it's an acknowledgement he always sees us. Jesus really is keeping his promise to his people. From Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. It's not that we're looking toward the day when we will be present with him. We need to acknowledge that he's already here. By his spirit, he's already here. So he sees. He sees whether or not we're genuine in our repentance. He sees whether or not we're forgiving and comforting those who are genuinely repentant. He sees whether or not we're obeying or or what's going on both in the public display and in the private display of our own lives. He sees. And how helpful it is in fostering a culture, a church culture of love and forgiveness to emphasize the omnipresence of God. He always sees. He always knows. So then the question is, what is he seeing right now in us? What's he looking at right now? Why would he say this? Verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a church committed to Christ unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ that he lived in perfect righteousness, died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and three days later rose from the grave for our justification, committed around him, to him, for him. He says we must not be outwitted by Satan. Satan is real. 
The devil is real. The adversary is real. And he's not the costumey character dressed up in red tights, walking around your neighborhood in a couple of weeks. He's described in 2 Corinthians, in fact, later on in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, he's described in this way. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's intentionally deceptive. He's actively trying to trick and defraud the church of Christ and distract us from the display of the gospel both in our proclamation and in our function as a church. Actively trying to outwit us and defraud us. And it's the same old trick. Did God really say? Did God really say that Christ is sufficient to forgive you of your sins? Did God really say? Did God really say that there's repentance and restoration after repentance? Does God really require all these things? Did God really say that? It's the same question over and over and over and over again. And how necessary it is is for us to see the basis of everything that we do rooted in the Word of God itself. Because if the if Satan is willing to out, is able to outwit us and distract us and pull us out of rooting everything in the biblical text, then he's got us already. We will have no basis to define, declare, or delight in repentance and faith if we don't root ourselves in God's word. And we must not fall prey to the trap of it. It seems nice. Because it does seem nice to offer people forgiveness without repentance. But it's not nice because it's a delusion. It seems nice to offer love without any sense of accountability or any sense of, of sanctification. But if you're really born again, you're a new person. There's living display of the life of Christ at work within you. It seems nice to just run around and tell everybody the things that they want to hear just to make them smile, but we must not pat people on the back as they are plunging headlong towards a Christless eternity in hell. It's a trick and a trap, and we are not peddlers of hopelessness. We are not peddlers of false assurances. We are not operating cloaked in darkness. We are not ignorant of His designs. To steal and kill and destroy. To foster sin and destroy gospel unity. To passively tolerate what Christ died to redeem us from. To kill and destroy the understanding of the necessity of the cross and the resurrection. To steal our conviction on the truth that God has given us himself. And you think of this this particular context here. Satan did not want this guy to repent. Satan would have been all the happy to just say, oh, let it go, let it pass, he'll be fine, just pat him on the back, he'll be good in the end. It's not true. But Satan also did not want the church to forgive and restore this repentant brother. He did not want the church to love and forgive and to comfort this man. He did not want the church to display in their function the gospel itself. He did not want it then, and he does not want it now. But the question is, whose design are we going to follow? Or maybe even more pointed, whose design are we following right now? 
What does your life say? Because as we foster this church culture of repentance and restoration, we have to be clear on sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And your manifestation of sin may be very different from my manifestation of sin, but we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've sinned against the highest authority that has ever and will ever exist. And in so doing, there is ruin in our lives. Both in the sense of our active, willful deeds, but also in the sense of our own sin nature. We need help that we cannot provide for ourselves. Even as Tim made mention of, even all of our good works are as filthy rags in his sight. But God sent Christ clothed in the glory of heaven who took on flesh, lived in perfect righteousness, died on the cross for our sin, rose from the dead, that there would be forgiveness and everlasting life in His name, and He would cover our ruin with His perfect righteousness and reconcile us to Himself in the cross. What a Savior. Don't walk in the, the, the designs of the devil and the delusions that you're okay without Christ because you're not. Don't walk in the delusions that you can do this all on your own because you can't. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus who died on the cross for you and rose from the dead. And for all of us in here who are believers, who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to encourage? Who do you need to call to repent? Who do you need to seek their gospel restoration? However the Spirit works in your own heart and life, respond and obey. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you for your church. Thank you for the fact that in calling us to salvation, you call us and you are, have made us a part of your body. The body of Christ. And Father, that everything about who we are and how we are would function by and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Father, we pray also for those who are in our midst who have never yet known you. Who have thought that the way of joy is their own road. But Father, we pray that you would bring them to repentance. To acknowledge their own sin. To acknowledge their own need of you. And they would run to the Father as we sang a little while ago. They would run to you. And find grace and forgiveness and life through faith in Jesus crucified and resurrected. Father, just as we seek to live out the gospel, Lord, we pray that the gospel would be on display in our midst here today. As hearts and lives and souls turn to you. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' mighty name and for his glory. Amen.